the sound was so loud that it felt as if the explosion happened in the ER or at least really nearby. The ceiling started to fall off and the room started to shake. I tried to run as fast as I could with my head down so that I wouldn't be hurt on the way out. Everything went dark. That is Dr. Sarah Abdulnabi, emergency medicine resident, American University of Beirut Medical Center. And what you just heard was what happened in her emergency department at the moment of and in the first few seconds after the August 2020 explosion in Beirut, Lebanon, which caused over 200 deaths and 7,500 injuries. It's thought to be one of the most powerful artificial non-nuclear explosions ever. And it happened right down the street from Sarah's hospital. I'm Rob Orman, and this is The Stimulus Podcast. A few years ago, I spoke with the staff of Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas and how they managed the mass casualty there. That was the one where a shooter opened up on the audience of a country music show. And you guys all saw the news and probably read the breakdown of how they did it. And if you heard the talk or saw the talk that I gave on this, you know that much of it focused on the moment, right? How they created order out of chaos with an overwhelming surge of trauma patients, right? How did they do it? Who went where? What were the procedures? What was the patient flow? What are the logistics, right? I mean, that's really what you need to get done. But what you didn't hear were the side conversations after the recording ended. And to a person, those got into the psychological toll on the medical team. Some people I spoke to, frankly, seem minimally affected, even charged, even inspired. But several had a bit of a shell shock look when going really deeply into how they were doing afterward. And, you know, going back many, many years, there was a mass casualty event from a plane crash near my hospital. And some of the docs who received the victims, they never came back to work after that. It was so overwhelming. So clearly there is an emotional aspect to this that's deserving of a deliberate and intentional approach. And what we're going to do today is walk through a firsthand account of what happened during the mass casualty event following the 2020 Beirut explosion from the lens of an emergency physician who was there, Dr. Sarah Abdelnabi. And this conversation is based on her article of the same event called Airway Breathing Circulation, an Emergency Medicine Resident's Experience of the Beirut Explosion. And this is going to be a two-part podcast. I don't think we've ever done that on stimulus. But here we go. We're going to do it now. Today is part one and being released soon will be the follow-up part two. And that is a discussion with Ryan Cheney. Now, you may remember Ryan from Stimulus Episode 5, The Art of Breathing. Ryan is a therapist who works with many first responders, with many healthcare professionals, and helping them work through stress and traumatic events and PTSD. It's what he's doing all day. And we're going to break down the conversation that you're about to hear. We're also going to go through some tools and strategies to apply should you ever find yourself not only in a mass casualty event, but any situation that overwhelms cognitive, physical, and emotional systems. That's our next episode. But for today, let's get to it. Our conversation with Dr. Sarah Abdul-Nabi. I want to read the first sentence from your article that described 
your experience with the day of the explosion. And it goes August 4th, 2020. It was a typical day in the emergency department. My day started with the adrenaline rush EM residents crave for as I intubated a patient in cardiac arrest. The rest of it went smoothly. As my shift reached its end, while assessing a patient, the room started to shake. The doors of the ED blew open and the surrounding glass shattered. I put my head down and rushed out as the ceiling collapsed. The ED blacked out. It was 6.08 p.m. Take me through what happened next. Just to go a bit before, I was in the room of the patient. I was trying to find an IV access. So she had a low blood pressure. I was using the ultrasound probe. The ceiling started to fall off and the room started to shake. I tried to run as fast as I could with my head down so that I wouldn't be hurt on the way out. Everything went dark. At that point, uh, I heard the rest of my team, the, the rest of the residents and the attending, screaming to keep our heads down because we didn't know what had happened. I went to reach to my phone because my phone was still on my desk. And I tried to call my family and I, the phone just wouldn't ring. This is when uh, I heard someone yelling that an explosion had happened. That's when I texted them that I'm okay. And I just tried to activate disaster. In that moment, what was going through your mind? What did you think was happening? Basically, the sound was so loud that it felt as if the explosion happened in the ER or at least really nearby. So I thought mainly that we were the only people that got affected by this. The only thing that I was thinking about is basically to get out of the ER because I thought that it had happened in the ER and that we will have to evacuate at some point. But when someone said that a bomb happened outside, then I understood that we were just like a wave along the big explosion that happened outside. And the and the ED blacked out, right? So were there emergency lights? So like, how could you see? So basically they had like a battery system mm -hmm. that was very very low light but we were still able to see but very minimally and then as the sun was going down we couldn't see anything at all are there windows in the ed or was it just like these low lights and dust and this kind of enclosed space there are only two cubicles that actually have a window but the rest of the er is completely closed there are no windows this is kind of this initial shock and the and the blast and the calamity and the darkness and then the wounded, it sounds like, very quickly started to arrive. It was really a matter of one or two minutes. I tried to call my parents. It didn't ring. I sent to them, I'm okay. And then a patient came in. How did they come in? How did that present? So this patient, the first patient that I saw was uh, someone who was actually on the street right outside of the ER. He had a big facial laceration. He didn't really know what had happened. He was just saying that an explosion happened, that he was scared, that he wanted uh, you know, someone to check his wound. Regular triage, I'd imagine, isn't functioning. There's, you know, you don't have your registrars or electricity or, the, or your usual stuff. So you've got that one guy. What happened with him before the deluge of people started? He got in, he was uh, holding his face, and he was just screaming that an explosion happened outside, but that he didn't know more about this. So uh, I had already my gloves on and I compressed on his wound, and I tried to see if he had any other injuries. 
as I was doing that, I was looking around to see if anyone would help me to get the gauzes and everything that I needed to be able to help this person. The problem was that when I looked around, I didn't find anyone. I don't know where was the rest of the team. I assumed that they had another patient that was that also came in that I didn't see. So while I was waiting, there was this medical student who came in and asked me if I needed any help. So I just told her to put on some gloves and just to apply pressure so that I can get everything from the storeroom. When I went to the storeroom and back, the ER was full with patients. So it was really a matter of two minutes between where going to the storeroom, getting what I need and coming back. And when you say full of patients, so on, on a normal day, you and I both know what that looks like. You've got people bedded in rooms, maybe if it's crowded, like some people in a bed in the hallway, or you know, maybe one or two people walking around. But, but this is very different, right? There's, there's not, I would imagine, not an organized ingress of people coming in to sort of randomly flowing. So what, what did that look like being full of patients at that time? A dark ER with uh, everyone everywhere. There's no, no one is assigned to a particular cubicle. There are several patients in one cubicle. There's blood everywhere. There's unorganization. No one knows exactly where to go. And uh, you, you don't know who to take care of first. And I tried to reach the, the medical student that I left just pressure, pressing on that wound. And I just couldn't get to her because there were so many people on my way. Not only sick, but there was, it was a crowded ED. At this point, you don't know how the day is going to play out, how many people are going to come in. I mean, obviously, you're not the only doctor in the place. There's, there's nurses, other people. So in that initial two-minute bolus of wounded... How did you guys manage that? When I came out of the storeroom to get to my medical student, I found that other residents from other departments had came in to join and help us. It's still dark, right? You're still, it's still dusty. It's still emergency low lights. Yes, yes. We had a um, piece on the Las Vegas mass casualty incident a few years ago, and that was penetrating trauma. There was a shooter who shot into a crowd hundreds and hundreds of wounded. And what struck me about the difference between what you experienced and that one is that they had warning. You know, that a lot of the conversation that we had was how did they prepare? They had a little bit of time, they had 20 minutes. And when the first patient started arriving, they had this well-defined triage system. There was a physician outside in the driveway, you know, managing the influx of cars and people and ambulance, et cetera. And he would do this 10 second triage and then patients would be brought into different zones in the emergency department and then different zones in the hospital. And it was, of course, it's chaos. It's always chaos in a mass casualty, but it, it was controlled chaos. And when I hear your account of what happened, it sounds more like the dam broke. Your hospital was right next to the dam in this instantaneous deluge of patients so, you know, we've got two minutes now, people are coming down, there's a lot of people, but over that first hour, you know, how did things play out as far as managing all the people there? And was there a turning point when it went from chaos to a little bit more organized? The main difference was that our hospital was affected and our staff was affected during the explosion. To activate disaster, it's usually done manually. Someone has to call. We couldn't have someone activate disaster. So this was one of the first delays that we had. Second, the ER was damaged. This also affected how we first uh, 
cared for the injured. Uh, and finally, uh, registration wasn't working because I think we didn't have any electricity and we were in an economic crisis at the time and there were a lot of people that got laid off. So even registration was a bit delayed because of that. So we had a lot of factors that affected how we were working for the first hour. At one point, uh, when we had more emergency physicians come in and helping us, it felt more organized. The ambulance that was coming in, there was a physician outside that was doing the triage that were taking the patients either directly to the trauma bay or to the other zones of the ER. There was a triage also outside for the low equity patient that could wait before going in. At some point, there were more, there was a bit of, there was a better organization than how we started. You know, you're talking about the first person that came in who had the facial laceration who needed direct pressure. You know, maybe he'll have other injuries, but he's walking, he's talking. And, you know, and so it's like, okay, you are, you are, you are not in needing immediate care, you know, when we're looking at the spectrum of everyone who's now here. Uh, but for really sick patients, even in a small mass casualty, you know, there, there's a, a really well-defined flow of, of input Patients managed, and then you go to surgery or ICU care. Lower acuity or the walking wounded, they are, um, you know, they they can wait, or you know, someone can manage them here and then send them home. But for those sicker patients, especially in the beginning when there's not organization, how did that patient flow work? I wouldn't really use the word work. <laughs> or or how did it how did it go? The trauma bay was dark. It was completely dark, and we were basically using flashlight to intubate the patients and uh, to insert IVs. But the good thing is the blood bank was already ready to give us some blood in case we needed it. The relatively good thing about it is that we didn't have the really, really sick patients at first. I think because these patients were not able to come to the ER on their own, they they had to come through the Red Cross. They were too sick to come in walking and talking. So this batch of patients came in later. By that time, we had a bigger team that were able to take care of these patients. But still, even at that time, electricity was still out and we were still uh, working on patients with flashlights. No x-rays, no CAT scans. <laughs> Did you even have suction for intubating? Suction was working. And for CT scan, what we did is basically we delegated one person for one patient. They would take the, the, this patient to the CT or to the X-ray, which is on the same floor. They are in the ED, uh, which, which worked at our advantage. They would go with the patient to the CT and they would get the report directly from the resident. And they would write it down on a piece of paper, for example, subarachnoid hemorrhage and just put it on the side rays of the patient that we would know that this patient has this. When I go back to your article, to some of your description, and just to paint a picture of what's going on at this point. So you say people were everywhere, screaming, searching for loved ones. Some tried to get in by using physical force. Many succeeded. We got hit. We got hurt. We carried on. Registration was not working and our victims had no names. I had to decide who could wait, who could not, and who we would leave be. 
We ran out of medical supplies. The same blade was used. Gloves were not changed. Staples were reused. We just wanted our patients to live. So as you hear that, your, your words, are: is there a particular picture in your mind or is there a particular patient in your mind or situation that you know, really is emblematic of what was going on there? I had a particular patient. She looked really similar to me. She was in her mid-20s, blonde. And she came in uh, gasping. So she was intubated right away by the attending. And then we took her to the CT. She had a massive bleed. We gave her some blood. And she arrested in the ER. While she was arresting, you know, whether to start compression and go through your ACLS all over again, or just how many cycles do you do for this patient? This is not a patient that has a good prognosis. You would take a lot of resources. Do you continue? Do you stop? So these dilemmas were very awful during this, uh, during this night, especially for the young population that we were seeing. In a mass casualty, you know, as you talk about in your article and as kind of part of the training, the resource utilization is kind of reversed, right? I mean, it's not whoever is the sickest gets the most resources, it's whoever has the best chance of survival gets the most resources and the sickest sometimes don't and die. And when you're in the situation where you're overwhelmed, these decisions are you know, very hard and they're especially hard when they're in your own mind, right? When you, when you have this internal dialogue and was it the case that you, know, you guys were just kind of thinking this on your own and it's like, look, we need to leave this person and we need to go on to the next. I mean, it's kind of just like this gut-wrenching thing, although when you're in the, the heat of it, you know, maybe a little bit blunted. Was the conversation just in your own mind or were you guys you know, verbally talking about this, that this person we need to leave and we need to go on to the next, even though it's the total opposite of what we do in a normal day? Yeah, so exactly. So this patient, I started the compression and then my attending told me to stop. It was right to stop and it felt so wrong at the same time. I just couldn't do it. So they moved on to the next patient and I kept my compression until until I got tired, you know? It felt really hard to let it go, you know? It's my first mass casualty and I hope it's going to be my last, but uh, these decisions were really hard to make on the spot. Eventually, it happens. You say the electricity was back, but darkness was still haunting us. As I made my way to go get more supplies, I saw them. At the end of the hall, lying in bags, were the nameless victims. Standing there, time stopped. I know I signed up for this. I love what I do. I mean, this is what you were just saying. I love what I do, and I'm proud of being an emergency resident. However, as my attending said, disasters are an exciting part of EM, but this is way past that. And yeah, a mass casualty, something that is part and parcel to the practice of emergency medicine. And even in the best of times, it's extremely hard on all of the members of the team. As a resident, I would think about mass casualties a lot and kind of, you know, and we would have lectures on it. I'm sure you guys have training and lectures. Actually, I know your hospital does an annual mass casualty training. So like before this happened, what did you think a mass casualty event would be like and then, what was it really like? Last year, uh, during the revolution, there were 
civil unrest and there were a lot of problems going on in Beirut downtown at that time. It was around uh, January 2020. I went and worked in the ER. There were a lot of victims, but they were not as sick as the ones that we had in the explosion. So I had a bit of an idea of what it was like uh, to work in a mass casualty. And we had the ATLS training last year, and we had the drills that we usually do. I think what was different uh, this time is that we were also affected by the explosion. We didn't know what had happened outside. We couldn't work in our best competence, if you want, because uh, everything was uh, distorted. I mean... Uh, we didn't have time to change gloves. We didn't have time to find the right suture. Blades were not changed. I don't know if mass casualties are supposed to be like that. When you hear about a mass casualty, usually it's not the institution per se is not affected. So you can have time ahead to work on how you want, where you want your triage to be, how you want your triage to be, and work on it exactly step by step as you have to do it. So eventually things calm down and you go home and you go back to work a couple days later. The explosion, if I'm not mistaken, happened on the Tuesday. Thursday, I came back to work. I was not excited to be back. I was actually scared. And on my way to the emergency department, there were still glass all over Beirut. There were still ap apartments that were destroyed. The glass was shattered. But I went to work anyway, and during my shift, I felt that I was not as efficient and as I should be and not as enthusiastic as I should be. So I had a patient that I was taking care of, and uh, I asked him a question that he didn't understand. It was, I don't really remember what the question was, but I asked him, he didn't answer, and I asked him again, and he didn't. And then I started to feel, you know, what is wrong with this patient? Why can't he understand what I'm saying? And then I noticed that I started yelling at him for no reason. So I calmed myself down, and I felt that maybe it's me. I'm not okay, and I still... I need to calm down. So I took a step back. This is when we had our debriefing session. It was in the middle of the shift. I went up to the debriefing session and I told my attending what happened with this patient. And they told me that it's completely normal to feel this way. And maybe you are not ready to be back. And it's okay, it happens. And if anyone needs a couple of days off or they need to talk about what happened, then this is the time to do it, which we really appreciated. What happened with that debrief? Like how, how how was it structured? Was this kind of kind of a random thing where everybody got together? Was it was it scheduled? And then what happened during it? After every mass casualty, there's usually a debrief about what went wrong, what went right, and what are things that we need to improve in case we have were we sticking to the plan and to the drills that we had, or did we differ from it and why? This debrief, however, was more about how we are feeling right now, because this mass casualty was different than the ones that uh, AUB had witnessed before in the past. So they mainly asked the residents how we were feeling about this. How did you feel before and after that debrief? Uh, so basically during the debrief, everyone got to talk about a specific experience or about 
how they are feeling about uh, what had happened. I felt uh, honestly relieved that uh, other people were feeling the same way. We were all scared. We were all um, drained and uh, physically uh, physically and emotionally exhausted. We were a bit demotivated about coming back to work at that time. And then uh, one of uh, my residents, my co-worker, was also saying that uh, we've been through a lot this year. We didn't only have the blast. There was also COVID all year long. Mm. We also had the revolution and the economic collapse. So he talked about all these issues, and it felt like we've been on... like we've been working so hard and uh, we just, there one obstacle after the other, you know? And it's like we've been on survival mode for a year and a half. And then we had the explosion. So we, we were f- really feeling uh, down. So when he talked about it, it felt like we were all feeling the same way. So this is when I felt, I started to cry, honestly, in the end of the debrief. I just couldn't hold it anymore. And you know, I started to cry under my mask. And then I went back to my shift. Uh, it did make me feel better to do that. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, as, as you say, there's like, there's so much layer on layer and on layer. And all, I mean, frankly, all of these layers of, of PTSD on, on top of themselves. And you have this one debrief, which is, you know, a real catharsis. I mean, the, like a debrief that where you can kind of, it's frankly, it's kind of like group therapy, right? You know, when you get into the group of people who had the same experience, but you know, you still, you're still carrying a lot with you after the, after any event like that. And especially, you know, as you say, you've got revolution, you've got COVID and you know, all this stuff. Has there been a continued care? Have there been things that you guys have found to be effective at navigating the psychological fallout? So basically, to be honest, we've had several debriefs. We, we didn't have only this one. We had one a week later and then two weeks later. We were also offered um, um, to, to be seen by a psychiatrist or by psychologists to talk about our experience. The door of the program director was always open for us to basically come in and vent and talk about what, what we were feeling. We had a lot of support, but as you were saying, it's that layer after layer after layer, and somehow we're still in the same vicious cycle, you know? We're still in COVID, we're still in an economic collapse, we still have the lockdown, the ED is still saturated with patients. So it's really, it's like an unending ball of problems. The fact that we have this support system around us helps, but it still feels like we are not really able to get over everything that's been happening. Is there anything that you've personally found that has been a good anchor or a release or a relief from this? To be honest, I got a bit lucky that after the explosion and after the, the end of the week, I had two weeks of vacation. It just happened that I had a vacation afterwards. I went to uh, our house in, uh, in the south and I stayed there for two weeks with no internet, no news. And I just stared at nature for two weeks and this really helped me. 
like I just disconnected from everything that was happening in Beirut. Actually, during these two weeks that I was able to write down everything that has happened. And I felt that writing it down really helped me to just for one moment put it, put it behind me. Looking back now, we're many months after this. What do you feel like you've learned or you'd like people to know from your experience? When I first got out of the ER on the day of the explosion, I felt, I'll say guilty, not guilty, but I felt that I could have done more for my patients. I just kept on having this uh, this idea that I could have done better. But the thing is, when when I look back at it, I think you know, I shouldn't have been so hard on myself. You know, at that time, I was feeling things. I was The fear that I had was uncomparable to any other experience that I had in my life. So maybe this is why I felt that I wasn't as effective as I should have been in a mass casualty. And every time I look back, I'm actually proud of how I worked during that day. When you say you had this fear, the significant, tremendous fear, what, what, what was the root of that fear? Was it the explosion itself? Was it kind of what happened with the patients in the ER and that, and that experience, a combination of all of it? I think it was the combination of all of it. And the experience of having worked in the mass casualty, how many dead patients we saw on that day, how we worked, the fact that we worked in the dark as well, the fact that I didn't know what had happened for so many hours. Uh, I didn't know anything about my family and my friends for a very long time before I could just look at my phone. All these combined were just, and it it was an unbearable uh, fear, to be honest. And how do you feel now going into work? Now things are better. I I feel fine when I go to work, but somehow every time I reread my my article, I start crying again. Mm. Uh, because I just remember everything and how all these scenarios, you know, how I went from one patient to the next and how we called that on several patients. And the fear comes back, the disappointments come back, you know. So this is a bit uh, tricky sure. still. Sure. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and sharing this. I know this is very personal stuff. Yeah, I mean, obviously wrote an article on this, but not with this much much revealed, and I know that our listeners will get a lot out of this as well. So very much gratitude and wishing you calm days ahead in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity also to talk about this. Wow, what a story. What an experience. And before we close up, I want to point out one thing that Sarah did that I think was extremely helpful in working through this. And we're actually going to get quite a bit into this in our next episode. But I think it's something that, you know, if you just hear it and and don't really cogitate on exactly what it is, it could be interpreted in a way that might not be healthy. Sarah describes having a vacation after this. Great. And essentially, she describes staring at nature for weeks and journaling. That is reflective solitude. That is different than isolation. They're both something you do by yourself, but isolation is just a feeling like, oh my God, I'm by myself just keeping all this inside, actively not 
connecting with anyone because connection was also part of working through this. Connection, a combination of connection and reflection. Much more to discuss on all of this in part two. Now, for some closing bits. Our World Bicycle Relief Partnership's taken off really nicely, actually faster than I expected. Thanks to all of you who have donated to the cause. And if that's something you're interested in, we have a link in the show notes for our stimulus donation page to this really incredible organization that frankly changes lives. We will match donations up to $1,000. Also, Essentials of Emergency Medicine is right around the corner, May 25th through 27th. That is how I'm spending much of my time over the next few months preparing for that. Use the code ORMAN, my last name, O-R-M-A-N, when you sign up for $100 off the registration. Shazam! And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And there, you can also sign up for our newsletter. Not a spammy, not an irritating newsletter, at least I hope not. But just if we got something important to say, we'll send it out. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.